Welcome to Leaders and Managers Hub, the podcast. We are absolutely delighted to welcome back, how would I say this and not make it sound trite? So this man sparked something for us significantly. Since we last spoke to him, he introduced us to a, a rich depth of people that we've featured on the show and you've, you've all listened to. So we're absolutely delighted to welcome back William Bill Allen. How you doing, Bill? Hey, Ray. Boy, is it good to see you again. I am so delighted to be back. It's great. Bill, like it's been it's been a year and so much has happened for you, for us, for the world. Do you want to start by just telling us, bring us up to speed. Tell us what Bill's been up to and, and where you are today. Well, probably the biggest news I have is I have a new book out. It's called On Being a Sensitive Man. And it's kind of the companion volume to the first book, which was my story is growing up and, and into adulthood as a highly sensitive man. And this book is more focused on sort of like a guidebook. I break it out into chapters where I call each one of these things, I, the, the topics that I go over, tools. So it's like having a toolkit um, or a tool belt or something. Uh, and I talk, go over various uh, things that I think will help highly sensitive men and highly sensitive people uh, navigate some of the challenges that they come up against sometimes as uh, highly sensitive people. And it was uh, just released, I think, the uh, last part of 2021. Um, and it'll be out in paperback in a couple of weeks. It's on the usual retail outlets everywhere, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. And hopefully by the end of March, it'll be on audio books. I had a wonderful guy out of Idaho who did the uh, audiobook for me, and I just loved his voice. He, he, he struck me as being a highly sensitive man, and I pegged him right on the money with that. And his name is uh, uh, Benny Fife, and he uh, does a great job, and he's going to be doing the second book. So I'm looking forward to hearing that uh, in the future. Um, some other good things, I've been on a lot of podcasts, met a lot of great people all over. I've been in a few uh, seminars um, on highly sensitive men and um, done that. It's been fun. And there is a documentary that I hope will be coming out this year, brought to you by the director of um, the first sensitive documentary movies, Will Harper. And he's working uh, with Tracy Cooper. You met Tracy. Dr. Tracy Cooper writes quite a bit on highly sensitive men as a thought leader for highly sensitive men. And I'm going to be somehow a small part of that movie, I, I hope. And I certainly think it's going to be a game changer uh, for highly sensitive men to actually have something they can see. Uh, there's some uh, celebrity that uh, is attached to the movie. I can't say a lot about it now, but it'll make it more real, I think, for sensitive men to see that there are other 
men like them and all sharing their experience. So I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And we've, we're actually been very lucky because that if you're involved in it, that will make three people that we've spoken to that will be involved in that documentary. So we're, we're really excited for that to come out. There's a lot to unpack in there. Um, but I just wanted to ask you, and this is entirely apropos of nothing in particular, other than I love audiobooks. So I've often wondered what the process is and how much the author gets to decide on the person who's actually reading the book. And I guess what you're probably looking for is somebody that gives the essence, the voice that you had in your head as you were writing the book. Is that is that correct? Well, the interesting thing about when I did the first book, Ray, I had about 170 different actors, voice actors, respond to the request. I just put out there, this is what my book is, this is what I'm looking for, kind of in a voice. And I, going through 170 different auditions was a real chore. Um, I, I had my girlfriend helping me on, at the time. But you're right. You're looking for somebody who you think represents the essence of the book. And I, I didn't want somebody that sounded exactly like me. I wanted somebody that reflected the book. And when I found this one gentleman um, who did first book, I, I, you know, I just said, he's got that kind of voice. You know, it's hard to put my finger on it, but it's an audio thing. And then you make the deal with them. You do to select them, you, and, you know, make the offer and they either accept or not. And uh, it's a pro interactive process between the two of you as he's going through and doing the readings. A lot of fun. I really enjoyed working with him and I'm looking forward to working with him again. One of the reasons I love audiobooks, Bill, is because, uh, and I'm not sure exactly what the mechanism, the internal mechanism is that's going on, but I, I'm somebody who's loved books all of my life. Uh, they've been a great companion to me. But once I discovered audiobooks, I'm able to close my eyes and listen and go to a place in my head that I, I just can't reach when I'm reading text on a page. And I know that some of our listeners will be going, oh, but you've got to have the feeling of the texture of the page and the book and all that. I totally get that. But I think for me, and it's probably part of my HSP trait, is that I love that immersion. And when I... When I hear somebody reading a book and I know that they're getting the essence, I can just sense this person is projecting the essence of the author when they sat there and wrote this book. You can almost you're almost there in the room with the author because you you don't just hear the words, but you feel all of the mechanisms that were going on in producing those words on that page. Uh, and and it's, it's incredibly powerful for me. And that's why I love audiobooks, And that's why I also love podcasts. So yeah, I've, I've met so many people who do I, and I never really thought much about audiobooks. And there's a couple of friends of mine or feel the same way you do. And a lot of ways, it may have something to do with the way your learning style is I, some people are audio, uh, some people are more visual. Um, and some people are kinetic, and I'm more touch feel. So I kind of like the book experience because I feel, you know, 
and that took me a little while to get used to ebooks and, and Kindle, right? I had to get used to because I was used to the book and the smell and the, and touching and marking it and all that kind of stuff. And so it's evolutional. But I did have listened to audio books before and even listened to my book as in audio format, and I enjoyed it. I did, even though I knew exactly what was in it. I it was a nice experience to hear it read to me. So. It, it is kind of a cool experience. And what a wonderful thing to be able to say, I listened to somebody read my own book. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool. So the second book, what was the experience like? What was the learning for you as you worked through that and got that down on the page, so to speak? Well, I'm going to tell you a little secret here. I, when I wrote the first book, I also wrote the second book. Okay. And so there was a book one, book two, and they were all going to be one book. And when I went to my editor with it, she said, nah, that's too long. Nobody's going to want a 500 page book on this. So let's split them up. They're already split naturally anyway. So the second time around, after the first book came out and I'd learned more about the trait because of my interactions with people, I went back and edited the second book with that understanding. Um, and I added some things, I removed a few things that I thought were kind of redundant. And it gave me a perspective that I didn't have the first time I wrote it. So it was a, an interesting process. I, um, you know, like I said, worked with an editor, we went back and forth on some things. And uh, I was able to shore up some of the things I wanted to punctuate in there that I didn't think were in there, like I said, from the things that I've learned. So yeah, it was nice to have it already written. I mean, it was almost like doing a, a third or fourth edit on it, but I had to put some things in there that I had learned uh, along the way too. And I'm always learning. I, I continue to write the blog only for the reason that it just keeps me touched through the topic, right? I, I'm staying in touch with it, got my hand on it. And my mind is always going, I got a million ideas about this trait. What if, and what if somebody did this? And, and so they wind up being blog articles. So it's constantly kind of keeping my foot on the, on the pedal. Give us one, one that you want to talk about. Let's open it up. Something that I've learned. Hmm. Okay. Here's, here's one of the biggest things, uh, Ray, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's a good segue into what, something I wanted to talk about anyway, is this term sensitivity. I the thing that's been giving uh, a lot of us who are working with highly sensitive men uh, some trouble is that the way the term is interpreted by men particularly, and that there's a lot of conscious and unconscious pushback on the term sensitive because of the way it's laid out. So Tracy and I have talked about this a couple of times. Will and I have talked about this a couple of times about how can we reframe this in such a way that we can at least get sensitive men who are, who are maybe not quite aware that they're highly sensitive, but to embrace the, the trait for what it is. So I did a little digging recently on where sensory processing sensitivity, the term came from. Dr. Erin was the one who I think has coined that term. And then of course she wrote the book on high sensitivity, but it's part of a, umbrella of theories that go roll together called environmental sensitivity theory, right? 
And what that really is, is about how the organism, any organism, but in this case, humans, interact with the environment. How sensitive are they to change? How sensitive are they to extremes? And from that came this whole notion about a personality trait called sensory processing sensitivity. Since you know, I've been researching this, we, it's now become pretty well established that it's on a spectrum, right? You've got some people, 20% of the population that are low on the spectrum, and they've even given it a metaphor uh, for these different groups. The metaphor for the low end are dandelions. They use flowers for the metaphor. And that dandelions grow anywhere. They, they don't have a problem with adapting. They're very resilient and prolific and so forth. And so they use that metaphor for those people. The great big middle, the 50% or 40 to 60% of the population are tulips. Tulips are more, a little bit less resilient perhaps than the dandelions are, but they are still hardy plants and they, they grow pretty well. And then on the high end, you have the highly sensitive people and they're referred to as orchids. And if you ever had any experience working with orchids, you know how funny, finicky they are and difficult they are if the environment is just not perfectly right. So that's become sort of the uh, model they've been using to define sensitivity as a spectrum. So it's not like there's highly sensitive people and then there's everybody else, right? And getting away from using terms like non-HSPs or people who are not sensitive, everyone has a degree of sensitivity to them. That sensitivity is reflected on how they interact with the environment, okay? So now we're starting to move into sort of concrete terms about what sensitivity is. It isn't just about being moody or finicky or uh, not being able to handle criticism or being hurt all the time. It really is more of a description of how you interact with your environment, okay? So now you have this a much clearer definition using sensory processing sensitivity as a model for human personality trait, right? So it now becomes, it makes sense to me, and I hope it makes sense to other people, why sensitive people react the way they do, right? And they have those four characteristics. I don't know if we talked about it last time, probably Tracy talked about it with you as well. Depth of processing, overstimulation, emotional reactivity, and the ability to sense the subtle in the environment. Why is that? It's because that's how we're wired to react to our environments, okay? It explains a whole lot of things about sensitive people that if you're not seeing it in that light, it puts a new light on it. You know, it, it, to me, it, it says, okay, that's why they react the way they do, right? Now, when you're talking about human beings, of course, it's, there's all kinds of complexities, individual differences, environments that everybody grew up in, throw it in. But in the simplest of terms, that explains highly sensitive people are more reactive based on the environment they're in. So if they're in bad environments, they're going to react more negatively. And if they're in good environments, they react amazingly. In fact, they react better to positive environments than anybody else in the population does. So that explains to me a lot about the trait, kind of puts it in a perspective that says, okay, now it makes sense. Now it makes sense to me why I'm the way I am. Now it makes sense to me why highly sensitive people react the way they do. 
their brains are wired for it. It's because of how we react to our environment. And like once upon a time, we used to be a, a bare naked, noisy ape. And, you know, we were at one with the world. Uh, and then we've slowly evolved to cocoon ourselves from the natural environment. We, we live in our houses. We step out into our cars. We drive to air conditioned offices. At least we did prior to 2020, right? Right. But that experience is not the same for everybody in the world. And I guess it would be, it's interesting to me how the whole classification of sensitivity and, and that sensational interaction with the environment differs from culture to culture and experience to experience. I mean, if I'm, if I'm living in a, in a culture where, I don't know, we particularly walk barefoot or something, then my interaction with the world is a completely different experience to somebody who wears patent leather shoes all the time and, you know, never walks around in bare feet. And so we're a spectrum and we're, we're living within a spectrum of experiences. And then we have all these other sort of spectrums that kind of push and pull on, a, on, a, on the way we, we are and, and, and how we live. And so it's no wonder that it's taken some time to kind of get to this point where we can actually start to realize, okay, so this is actually what's going on. And what's hopeful for me, Bill, is that once we've, once we've been able to reconcile that, then the natural question is, okay, so where do we take this? How do we use this to benefit our lives and not be like one of the common themes we've had through all of the HSPs that we've spoken to, not in every case, but in some cases, it, it led to quite a lot of disadvantageous experiences as children and stuff because of not not being able to make sense of the world as we were experiencing it, because we were experiencing it in a way that wasn't fully understood probably wasn't really acceptable if in in air quotes acceptable and people couldn't couldn't give us the language to be able to explain what we were experiencing and so the natural thing is to think well there's something wrong with me obviously and it's it's been interesting to talk to all and hear of all those experiences but it's also made me very sad but it's also made me very hopeful because now we know a lot more so what do we need to be doing, Bill Allen? Where do we take this? How do we make this a glorious thing? Okay, well, yeah, there's a lot in there, as you say. Sorry. Here's, here's my take on it. And I think this is shared by some of the other people that are working to try to promote the trade, period. Dr. Aaron likes to talk about this trade as being evolutionarily necessary, that you have a group of people who are aware maybe more aware than most other people because of the way they're, they're neurologically wired, okay? They're able to pick things up out of the environment. When I say environment too, it isn't just, you know, the locale that you're in. It could also be emotional environment. It could be uh, a psychological environment. It could be a whole different host of other things that you're in. 
So you can take, as you were saying, there's a more primitive environments and then there's more sophisticated and that's only a relative term, right? It's a comparison, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter because those same individuals, highly sensitive or not, are still gonna be highly sensitive regardless of where they are. And there's a purpose for it. There's a reason why nature baked this in to the 20% of the population. Nature doesn't do anything that has no purpose because the minute you become without a purpose, you get wiped out, you get selected out basically, and you're gone forever. So nature has kept us throughout the history of, of mankind. So my thing right now, uh, Ray, is this idea that we need to get the word out to HSP people, particularly to educate them on this trait so that they can start self-educating and learning more about it. I don't think you can handle the challenges. You know, every, every HSP is going to have a litany of, well, this happened in my life and this happened in my life and so forth because people don't understand them or because they don't understand themselves. So I think the first thing is self-education, getting highly sensitive people to understand some, you know, the, the kind of things that we were just talking about. And believe me, the research is coming. It's going to be even more in depth than what we have today. There'll be more neurological stuff. They're doing a lot of fMRI imaging of the brain. That kind of stuff is going to reveal a whole lot of things. But we've still got to learn how to educate children. We've got to learn how to handle and communicate to people who do educate children or interface with children, doctors, health professionals, on how to deal with HSP children, because they are different. They are. But as I said, once people become educated about it, they can start embracing the trait. They can start seeing, well, you know what? I am pretty creative. You know, that deep processing really helps me. And the fact that I can sense things that other people can't, I can start putting dots together that other people can't. It takes me a little longer because I'm processing so much. Then you start to see the benefits. Then the other part of it is dealing with the challenges. There are techniques and tools and everything. It's in the book here that I talk about things like brain training, about mindfulness exercises, about meditation, about ways of controlling some of that runaway overwhelm that people feel. Once people get the idea, especially HSPs, that they can control some of those wild cards that are floating around, then they can focus more on the positive traits and then they can get out and start educating other HSPs and other people around them. It could be in a small community, family, friends, colleagues, or it could be in a big way on a national stage or an international stage. But to kind of wrap it up in a bow is that I really believe this is a time the world needs highly sensitive, empathetic, thoughtful, kind, conscious people to step forward and start offering suggestions, ideas, counsel about how we correct some of the many myriad problems we have. The world is too small to be doing this, my nation is fighting your nation, or you know, um, I want that, you don't have that. And so we're going to be rich and you're going to be poor. We got to stop that. We're killing ourselves. The planet is killing us because we have destroyed the opportunity to be on this planet and share it. That's why I think ultimately, Ray, highly sensitive people are here. Now, I'm not proposing grandiose things for highly sensitive people, that they're better than other people or that we have some special magical abilities. 
but we're wired by nature for that one purpose. You know, I used to use the analogy of meerkats. You know, you've seen those little do documentaries where they look, they poke their heads out of the hole and they look around to see if it's it's safe. And when it's safe, they give the signal. They all come out at the same time and they all go back in. That's kind of the way HSPs are. We're cautious. We are looking. We're sensing things. We see things. We notice when things are dangerous there. We're the canary in the coal mine. That's what our job should be. And in order for us to do that, we have to get a sort of critical mass of highly sensitive people together to start sounding the alarms and suggesting and proposing ideas, how we can do things alternatively. And, and that includes how men define masculinity. That, this has become a thing that I'm hearing from uh, Gen Zers and millennials, particularly, they're not happy with the way masculinity is defined today. Men aren't allowed to do certain things. Men are not allowed to express emotion. Men aren't allowed to be uh, empathetic. They are stoic. They have to hold things inside. They can't be vulnerable. This is killing men. So, and I know I'm on a soapbox now. You, you got me started, but- No, Bill, you go, go, go. Uh, but, but the idea is that is what I think is the purpose that highly sensitive people are probably looking for even if, even if they have individual purposes, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a doctor, there's a greater purpose that I think we all like to attach ourselves to. And highly sensitive people, I think this is their moment in history. And I think this is the time for us. And, and, and I'm not, I don't think, exaggerating uh, the importance of making some of these changes. I'm a bit of a radical, Bill, insofar as I like to poke and prod and push but it was interesting sorry when you, when you were talking about the meerkats what i had in mind was a u-shape so when we were slightly hairier noisy apes that ability to sense danger and sense predation is what allowed us to survive as a species and then we kind of sank into this trough of life not being so precarious because we had mastered the natural world we we had no you know we weren't being eaten by lions and tigers on a regular basis at least certainly not not in the western world anyway but generally you appreciate what i mean and we're heading almost back on an upward trajectory of where life is becoming more precarious because there are things out there that we're now becoming aware of that could wipe us out tomorrow that we don't necessarily have an immediate answer for or an immediate response. And unfortunately, one of those things is ourselves because we have developed weapons that can destroy the planet and we haven't evolved the maturity to be able to use that technology sensitively and with empathy. And so it's almost like HSPs rising again, that our time is coming back where we will become more necessary. And so here's where I'm going to get quite bold. The world as we know it, by the time the children who are starting school this year become our age, Bill, I know we're both quite young relatively, but you know what I mean? The world as we know it will look nothing like it does then. 
and yet we're expected to educate children to meet the challenges of that world so everybody's on a spectrum on the spectrum shall we say so there's no such thing as zero sensitivity how do we nurture particularly young boys to get away from this this toxic labeling of you know be strong you know don't cry big boys don't cry and all that bs to actually nurture them to embrace being sensitive if sensitive is the word we use in this particular context what what do we need to do bill because we can't wait for evolution to sort it out because technology is moving too quickly and our ability to kill each other is moving too quickly so we're going to need to inject some energy and momentum into this change what do we do well there's a lot of uh, different ways i guess you could approach that one of the things, um, and I honestly believe this is going to be an intergenerational evolution. I don't think it's going to take a thousand years, but I think it will take probably two or three good generations of people devoted to this idea of redefining what masculinity means, not only for sensitive boys, but all boys. And what I suggest more than anything else, I wrote some stuff uh, for one of the leading HSP newsletters about raising sensitive boys. And one of the main points, aside from letting them be who they are, uh, quit trying to push them into being that old model, that old model of masculinity, which I went through, you probably went through it yourself. Uh, boys don't cry. My gosh, if you cry, you're going to be like a girl and you don't want to be like a girl. Like being anything feminine is, a, is a, the kiss of death for a male. It is really about, I think, allowing a child, male or female, to have a kind of an interactive relationship as you raise that child. I think the child will tell you things about who they are if you listen and pay attention. Now, that doesn't mean you throw the reins away and let them go wild. You still need to give them boundaries. You need to give them guidance. Every child wants that, right? They don't want to have the guardrails fall down. But if you listen to your child, you'll see them express their humanity. And that's the idea of stressing that we raise good, decent human beings, right? The male-female dichotomy, the boxes, the, that kind of thing, that stuff is changing. Even as we speak, we don't have, you don't have to do anything. It's changing and the younger generations are defining gender roles in completely different ways than you and I did growing up and what we were told growing up. And so that's already afoot. It's already starting to take place. What I would add to that would be, like I said, let's raise good, empathetic, emotionally aware human beings so that they know, especially boys, that if they need help, they can ask for it. Quit trying to be Clint Eastwood or John Wayne or, or any of these uh, heroes that we've created. And I'm nothing personal against either one of those men. It's just the characters they played were these stoic warriors that very unemotional, uh, never had to ask for help, always had the right answers. You know, we need to be able to model a more human version of, of what a man is supposed to be. And I think if we do that, we open the box up. 
think about the human genome, the almost infinite variety of how the genome can be expressed. Every individual is different. Every individual grows up in a different environment. They're all gonna be unique. Quit trying to cookie cutter people together and say, you know, you either have to be in this box or you have to be in that box. Those restrictions are ancient and archaic and they may have served a purpose. I don't know, a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, but in our world today, we need boys and girls to grow up as caring, thoughtful, kind, empathetic individuals. And every one of those, whether it's nurturing or intuitive, which we don't usually associate with boys, are all human traits. We have just assigned arbitrarily. That's a woman's trait. That's a boy's trait. Quit trying to do that. And so as a, as a course of time, those boys will grow up and they will raise boys and the, they will raise boys and so forth until one day that gets washed out, all of that old stuff. And they'll look back and say, I can't believe that great grandpa Bill grew up in that world, right? That it's so much more open nowadays in terms of being able, and this doesn't have anything to do with sexuality. It has to do with how you identify as a human being and who you are as a human being. So that would be my suggestion. And I tell you, Ray, I think the kids today, when I say kids, they're adults, but they're younger than us, they have got a better handle on this. And they're gonna be the ones who ultimately define what this is. But what I'm seeing from what I'm hearing from them, I like it. It is more open, it's more human. And I think that's where we need to go. Mm. And as you were talking there, it brought to mind a conversation we had with Dana Kaplan last year, where she was talking about inclusivity and that whole thing of just allowing a child to speak for themselves and be who they are and say what they want to say and express themselves, you know, and not not judging them or artificially cosseting them to be in a particular way. That whole almost degenderization of young children so that you're you're a child you're not a little boy or a little girl you're a child and and you just you're glorious just for that fact so be who you are so i'm just mindful because i'm continuing my ta studies uh, at ta works this year and at the weekend we were talking about classification cultural classification and this is where like the whole idea of men women masculine feminine heterosexual homosexual omnisexual whatever comes in they're all methods of classification and our tutor was talking to us about how in certain cultural contexts and, and the example she gave was homosexuality she was saying that even though somebody is homosexual the cultural messaging that they've had that's told them that homosexuality is wrong inside their heads, even though they're homosexual, they can have an inbuilt bias against homosexuality. And that can lead to some horrific um, consequences for them, for their, for their psychology, for their emotional well-being. So, just to come back to where you started, Bill, around the word sensitive and how we move this forward with men so that 
there's less of a cognitive clash there for people. What, what can we do around that? Well, I, this is going to be a monumental effort, I'm, I'm afraid, because we're, we're going against stereotypes that are incorrect and, in many cases, uh, pejorative to sensitive men. I had an interesting discussion with my sister and brother-in-law. My sister is an advertising executive. Uh, my brother-in-law is a business consultant coach about how to reframe this. And, uh, you know, uh, we went back and forth on some ideas. Uh, they really believe that sensitive is such a difficult word that we may never be able to overcome that. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think you can reframe things. And I give you some examples. When I was growing up, we'll go back to the example of homosexuality. The term queer was not exactly a positive term that was used amongst any, any of the individuals who used it, right? Today, it's, it's part of the lexicon of defining the sort of panorama of people who are in the LGBTQ plus community. And it's, it's something that a lot of people take great pride in. It took, what, three, four, five decades of constant massaging the message to change that connotations associated with that word. Now it's less uh, a, a pejorative and more of a saying, this is who I am. It's a stake in the ground. This is who I am. I think the same thing will have to happen with sensitive. It's going to be an uphill battle. There are going to be a lot of traditionalist men, particularly, and traditionalist women who are going to be against this. They're thinking, well, you're making men to be androgynous. You're making men to be feminized. No, we're not. What we're doing is opening up what masculinity means to include more people who are men who don't fit that old bucket. And there are going to be a lot of people who are going to push back simply because they're afraid in their mind, for whatever reason, that it's going to threaten their lifestyle, their, their worldview, whatever. That's what we're going to have to push up against over, over time. But I'm convinced that if you talk to people, like just like you and I are talking right now, just conversationally talking and explaining the scientific reasons for sensitivity, why it's there, you know, even on an evolutionary basis, why it's there, and explain that sensitive people also struggle with the trait sometimes because they don't have the tools, because they were never taught. They were never raised to uh, know how to deal with overwhelm and stress, the tension that comes from, from, from having these enormous amounts of stimulation that they're getting from the environment. I think it's, again, it goes back to education. We have got to keep pushing the message that sensitivity it's out of the bag. It's been out for 30 years now. I don't know that we're going to put it back in, in a box and relabel it. Although science may come up with something new. I don't know. That's what we have to work with. And I'm okay with it. And I think if you explain this to reasonable people, people who have an open mind, uh, or at least are willing to listen to you, they'll see this. They'll see what the message is. And I don't, I don't think it's that complicated. Um, again, it's going to take education on the HSP community. It's going to take education on the, those outside of the HSP community. But we have to talk about it. And it has to be talked. And it's just something right now that's starting to build a little traction, but it's not like on every news show, right? But it will gain that momentum, I'm sure. 
I like that. That gives me a lot of hope, Phil. It really does. And at the end of the day, it's just a word. You know, we're exactly. we're quite happy to say that being sensible is good. And, you know, oh, he talks a lot of sense, but he's sensitive. Oh, no, can't have that. Actually, it's it, it, a superpower. Yeah, it's funny because I don't know if Tracy shared this with you, but it's become one of his, his big metaphors. And I really like this. If you have an instrument that has to measure something very precisely, you want that instrument to be sensitive, right? That's a good word. That's a good usage of the word sensitive. It's precise. It measures exactly what you want because it has the ability to receive whatever it is it's measuring in such a way that it makes it precise. So I like to think of sensitive people as being a specialization of human beings, not better or worse, but just a specialization of human beings that are extremely precise because they're sensitive about how they're receiving things in the environment. Goes back to that old model I was talking about at the beginning, uh, but it's a, that really is kind of how we are. So sensitive in that term, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I love that because like, as you were saying that, I was imagining lying on an operating table and there's a surgeon over me and would I rather he have sensitive hands and using sensitive instruments or do I want him to come in with hands like a welder and, and you know, big heavy implements? I know which one I'd rather. So it, it's almost silly to talk about, to, to have to be hung up on the word because it's just how people interpret it or how, you know, how we've been culturized um, to put these connotations on these words. And life's about so much more than that at the end of the day. Bill, is there anything else you particularly want to speak of while you're here with us? Um, honestly, I think that um, my message is like it always is in every podcast I'm on. For highly sensitive men, particularly, to find out more about the trait. You know, you, there's there's a lot more information available now than there was 30 years ago. And there's certainly a lot more information than there was when we were growing up, which there was none. So this is the time to find out about it and find out if that uh, you identify with that trait. Um, there's, tests, there's a test you can take. Dr. Erin has on her site, hsperson.com. Take the test. Learn about it. Start to embrace it because I'm telling you, we need you. And everybody needs to be on deck right now. We have, I think, a crisis going on in the world. I think the coronavirus, COVID, has really thrown a light on all the weaknesses that our system has, right? All the, the breakpoints are starting to, starting to crack a little bit more because it all depends on the assumptions that things are going to work a certain way. We need people now to start rethinking the way we do business, the way we do things and communicate and how we interact with our fellow citizens of the countries that we're in with, and also with the world, because we really truly are an international community. And COVID has proven that. And I can say as somebody who, before we started this journey, I had not identified as a, as a HSP. And I very much do now. I sense from the from the numbers I'm getting from the tests I've done, I'm not quite an orchid, but I'm certainly a high achieving tulip, shall we say, to use to use those phrases. I like that. 
and, and I, you know, I, I absolutely would encourage people because, and I'm still learning. So what I'm starting to realize is that I had an awful lot of suppressed emotion because I purely just didn't know how to man, manage it, handle it, experience it in a healthy way. And so what I did was I completely uh, denied its existence because, you know, if it doesn't exist, then I don't have to deal with it. And that has caused me not just emotional, but physiological problems later in life. So if there's anybody out there that's listening to this that thinks, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, do yourself the biggest favor that you can do. Take the test, and when you find that you where you are on the spectrum, embrace it because it will change your life in the most wonderful way ever because it will completely reframe the world for you and open up a world of possibilities as well which I'm slowly starting to unpeel. So, yeah, I would just leave people with that. So, Bill, can you tell us the name of the book again, please? The new one is called On Being a Sensitive Man. Um, there's a subtitle, Success Strategies for Harnessing Your Highly Sensing Nature. It's like I said, it's a, think of it like a trail guide, right? If you went out on a trail somewhere and you'd never been on this trail before and and you, you wanted some tips on where to where to camp, where to hike, where to look. That's what this book is about. It's not a psychology book. It's an easy read. Um, and I think people, especially HSP men, uh, hopefully will find some very good benefit in reading it. Absolutely. And we'll put some links in the show notes to various outlets where the book is available as well. And so it remains for me to say, Bill Allen, lovely to see you again thank you very much for coming back to speak to us and you're going to come back again thank you i'd love to come back again always enjoy talking with you thank you bill Contradiction, we need a brand of passion that you can't imagine.